Okay, Jesse, my big fat Greek murder plot last week was real wild. What's the story this time around? A Tennessee community is shaken when one of their most respected citizens seems to have a very hard time keeping her husbands alive. When unlucky coincidences pile up, suspicion is finally cast upon the good nurse and society matron. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about money, corruption, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. We also have had some inquiries lately whether we are still doing stickers for Apple Podcast reviews. And we are. So if you have left a lovely review for us in the last few weeks and have not sent us a message to get a free, cool Love Murder sticker, please, please do. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support, all of the different things we get to do together, and all the goodies that you get. Yes, and thank you so much to everyone who showed up for a our Lifetime movie watch party last night. It was a hoot. Andy and I already have some ideas of different types of content we are going to binge with you in the future. As well as, I don't think we talked about our latest Patreon episode bonus was actually Andy and I's meet cute story. It was. It was pretty cute, too. And I think we do have our watch party for July. We know what we're going to do. I think so, too. We'll send out a message to patrons soon about that. Get excited if you're a patron. And if you have ever been curious about how this dynamic duo came to be, uh, sign up for the bonus episode so you can hear our meet cute story that came out last week. But yes, we would love to introduce a bunch of new patrons right now. We want to shout out and give a big thanks to Kevin S., Alexis B., and Jennifer M. Echo H., great name, Echo, <laughs> Meg W., and Molly M., Eugenie L., Katie F., and Holly H., and finally, our newest patron, Andy S. We got an Andy and an Echo this week. That's wild. <laughs> I know. I love it. So thank you, all of you, for becoming patrons. We adore you. We adore all of you listeners. And I think to thank you, we should jump right in. March 16th, 2003 was an uneasy day for David Leith's loved ones. It was the day of his memorial service, a day certainly filled with grief for all of those who have lost someone they care about. But David's service was particularly fraught and filled with both confusion and suspicion. The Solway, Tennessee church was filled with mourners casting their eyes toward the grieving widow an elegant silvery brunette named Raynella Dossett Leith. 
Rainella had always been a commanding figure in the social and political circles of Knox County. Her first husband had been a district attorney general and had been gearing up to run for governor of Tennessee when he was killed in a sudden and bizarre accident. There had been whispers, of course, that Rainella had perhaps had a hand in the strange death, but those rumors were quickly quashed in the face of the wealthy and formidable nurse and social worker. There had been eyebrows raised about certain romantic entanglements and a shocking attempted murder charge about someone not even married to Rinella and definitely not husband one or two. But Rinella had weathered it all out and still come out on top. However, when husband number two, the charming, handsome, and fun-loving David Leith passed away, allegedly due to suicide, well, now there was more than just whispers to one another. There were pointed stares and secret calls to the police. Mm. By the time the memorial was held three days after David's death, the police were already eyeing the Knoxville doyen for murder. Because what kind of suicide is from a man shooting himself twice in the head with his left hand when he's right-handed? What kind of woman loses two husbands in strange and suspicious ways? Andy, this is a case that has two dead husbands, three trials, and more twists and turns along the way than you can shake a stick at. Laying it all out for us, Jessica. It's going to be a ride. I want you prepared. Uh, so my sources today are the book Her Deadly Web by Diane Fanning and an episode of 48 Hours from Season 31, Episode 2, The Widow on Solway Road. There's also a six-part podcast companion piece with Aaron Moriarty, the journalist from 48 Hours. So I'll get more into that when we get to that part. Rainella Bernardine Large was born in Gatlinburg, Tennessee on October 25th, 1948, the second of three daughters born over a decade from 1945 to 1956. Rainella's dad was a brilliant scientist. He had master's degrees in chemistry and physics and eventually settled the family in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where he worked for the Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies and was one of the founders of the American Museum of Atomic Energy. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, he is really bright. Now, we're going to talk about whether this was powers for good or powers for evil. <laughs> because if Oak Ridge sounds familiar to you, you probably know that it is one of the birthplaces of nuclear weapons. Okay. Yeah. So I don't usually get into specifics about the place or the towns where these crimes are committed, but Oak Ridge is really, really interesting. So I had to briefly mention some things about it. So it was founded in the early 1900s by a mystic named John Hendricks, who said that he heard a voice telling him that he must go to this specific spot in this valley and lay down with his head on the ground for 40 days and 40 nights so that he could receive visions about the town's future. Okay, so that's what you mean by mystic. A mystic. That's what I mean when I say he was a mystic. <laughs> so he did so. And now this was completely unfounded area. This is complete wilderness at this point. I am not sure if there was indigenous people on the property. Probably. We say it's complete wilderness, but um, there was most likely a thriving community there that we killed. So he went and he did this. He had these visions and he later 
gave this proclamation of the prophecy that he saw. And what he said was that someday that spot would be filled with great buildings and factories that will help toward winning the greatest war that will ever be. He said, big engines will dig big ditches and thousands of people will be running to and fro. They will be building things and there will be great noise and confusion and the world will shake. He was proven right some decades in the future when Sleepy Oak Ridge was chosen to be the home of the secretive Manhattan Project, the American-led program that invented the atomic bomb, thus developing the advent of nuclear weapons. Ugh. So this is where little Raynella grew up with her father a part of this mysterious and world-defining project at the best schools with the offspring of the other greatest minds in science. Wow. Even in that competitive pool, though, Ranella stood out. Everybody remembered her. Everybody noticed her. She was a good-looking girl. She was smart, driven, and poised. Ranella took advanced courses. She was a member of three social clubs, as well as the chemistry and the physics clubs. She played the clarinet, and she was regarded as one of the most popular girls in school. Wow. Yeah. So she was a, like an all-around... American girl with a good head on her shoulders and a scientific pedigree. After high school, Raynella attended East Tennessee State University where she studied to become a nurse. There, Raynella both got great marks and became a great marksman or markswoman, I suppose, becoming a member of the competitive rifle shooting team. Uh-oh. How? What? There's a picture of her with her team in the, like, 50s. Wow. Pretty wild. Yeah. She also met the man destined to become husband number one, William Edward Dossett, known to all as Ed. Ed was born on January 4th, 1948, not too far away from Oak Ridge in Solway, Tennessee, which is basically it's between Oak Ridge and Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. And he was born to a compassionate school teacher mother and a hardworking farmer father, but very Very tragically, he lost both of his parents within a couple months of each other when he was only nine years old. Oh, my God. That's so young. It's so young. So he said that his father was diagnosed with cancer. And while he was going through treatment, which, by the way, his dad worked at a nuclear power plant. And a lot of people in this area around where these weapons were being produced and nuclear energy was being harnessed, got cancer, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So he had cancer, and his mother was taking care of his father, and she ended up dying of a heart attack. And then two months later, his father passed away from the cancer. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was the sole heir to this massive landholding. They had been farmers for generations, it sounded like, at that point. And so he had... I think something like 160 plus acres of like prime land that they were working. But he was only like an eight or nine year old boy at this point. So clearly he could not run the farm. He's a kid. So there was a whole hullabaloo over who got custody of him. He ended up going with one of his aunts and her husband and they moved to the farm. And there was also controversy between the family members about who was going to take care of David 
because one of the other sisters, one of his other aunts felt like the aunt who did take him was taking advantage because she was renting out the fields, renting out the outbuildings to people and making money off of it. And also they weren't sure what she was doing with his social security or disability check that he should have been receiving from his parents' death. So there was a lot of controversy in his young life at that point. There was like a family separation between the two aunts. And he did end up, despite all of this, despite the tragedy, despite the controversy in his family, he somehow ended up growing into a very straightforward, intelligent, and driven young man. And he really had a lot of ambition. He wanted to make something of himself politically, but he also had almost an equal desire to be a farmer and continue on his family's farming tradition. Ed was awarded a football scholarship to East Tennessee University, and during his sophomore year, he met the intelligent and strong-willed Raynella with the scientific pedigree, and it was an almost instantaneous love match. Of course. Of course. The couple married in 1969 when Raynella graduated from college and both went on to get postgraduate degrees. Renella in nursing, and later on social work, and Ed earned a law degree from the University of Tennessee. So Ed set up his practice with a group of law school colleagues at this point, and the couple welcomed their first child a few years later, a little girl named Raynella Magdalena Dossett in 1978, whom they called Maggie for her middle name. So yeah, Raynella Jr. went by Maggie her middle name, Magdalena, which was also her deceased grandmother's name. That was Ed's mother who had died of the heart attack. So it's a lot of pressure on Maggie here. Where's Raynella from, that name? I think that it was based on her father might have been Ray. I think that his his nickname was Dewey, but I feel like it came from some sort of patriarch who was named Ray that then became Raynella. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that was my impression at least. So the new addition to the family compelled Ed to finally make the move to go back to his family farm and really claim it as his own. And in that way, what he decided to do was to bulldoze completely the farmhouse, which I'm sure had a lot of complicated memories for him, given that he found his mother deceased and then had to watch his father dine as a child. Yeah. So that place got bulldozed. And then he actually designed and built his own contemporary home on the same spot using only lumber from his land. So amazing. Isn't that so cool? In 1982, Ed campaigned and won the position of sixth judicial district attorney general in an upset victory that gave the family a certain level of political pull and prestige at this point. When Ed took office, he was allowed to bring in his own loyal staff. The first person he selected to make the transition with him was longtime legal secretary Kay Kraft, who was also Ed's longtime lover. Now, Diane Fanning doesn't delve deeply into this affair, but given how long it lasted, there was clearly some sort of love and companionship and definitely sex going on between these two. But it seemed like Ed never really entertained dumping Raynella for his secretary, which I'm sure was politically motivated because that wouldn't look good for an aspiring Republican governor to ditch his dignified, classy, smart wife for somebody who worked for him. 
social worker nurse for somebody <laughs> who was his subordinate. Anatomy of a scandal. Exactly. Yeah. So Kay must have definitely known the score because even though she continued to work for her affair partner, and it seems likely that the affair continued, she did end up married to a man who worked for and eventually owned an auto shop. It was a transmission shop, I believe, named Steve Walker. And both couples ended up having more children around the same time. So Ed and Raynella had already had Maggie, and now they welcomed son Eddie Jr. And second daughter, Katie, well, Kay gave birth to two sons. With Raynella and Steve being supposedly none the wiser, the couples frequently socialized. Ugh, gross. Gross. I know. I'd be so pissed later on oh. if I found out that I was letting this woman bring her fruit salad over to my picnic when she was uh, sampling some other family specialties. Uh, yeah, no, I would shove that fruit salad right up her ass. Yeah, I don't think so. But yeah, even Steve is on the 48 Hours, Steve Walker, and he seems like he has a very good sense of humor about all of these things. He told author Diane Fanning that he completely thought Ed was a friend of his as well, and that oftentimes Ed would just stop by and talk to him about farming, especially. That was one thing that they bonded over. He said later, we didn't have any other common interest except for my wife. And I didn't know about that at the time. <laughs> Icon. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I feel like there has to be some sort of term for when people, because that happens all the time in film and television too, when people like create friendships with the people they're having affairs with. I mean, even think about the Betty Gore case as well. Yes. Like it's, yeah, they there's were some sort of fascination. Together. Yeah. I think also that it's a way to be around each other, even when it's maybe not sexual. It's probably like sneaky and fun. And it kind of probably puts your partner at ease if it is caught that you're seen around the person or you're doing something together. It's like, oh, yeah, I ran into them town and we ran and got a coffee together because we're all friends after all, right? It's all calculated. It's so, so, it's so bad. manipulative. Yeah. Well, obviously, Ed was no angel behind closed doors, but he was well-respected in the community, and he had a good reputation as a DA. A colleague named Norman Jackson said, Ed was not a big hellraiser. He was a 100% guy. Anything he went at, he went at 100%. He didn't do anything halfway. Some people saw him as a hard-nosed politician, but that was just 100% his character. He was ambitious without being ruthless. He gave all to farming, to law, and when he relaxed, he really relaxed. If he wanted to raise hell, he could do a good job of that too. Well, he was raising hell in the bedroom or in his <laughs> office or wherever, or, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was even another situation where Steve said Kay came home and she was pissed and crying and mad. And when he asked her why she was so upset, she said that she had come to work and like after lunch or something, she had returned from lunch and she found Ed coming out of his office with a woman and it, it was appeared that they had been in the office shower together. Like they both like seemed like they had wet hair or something was going on. And she was like, I think he was sleeping with that woman in his office, in the, the, the office shower. And Steve is kind of like, well, I mean, I can understand how that would be kind of gross because it's your boss and you know he's married. But, like, does it really, like, require you to be this upset? 
Yeah. You now you know why. Yeah. Like a woman scorned instead of just, uh, well, my boss is disgusting. So crazy. In 1990, Rainella retired as a nurse and devoted herself to raising her children and helping out on the farm, as well as supporting her husband's political ambitions. Her children and neighbors recall Rainella as a very caring and involved mother. She often took the children over to Ed's childhood best friend's house in the summer months to go swimming. His childhood best friend was a man named David Leith. David and Ed had been buddies since they were only eight years old. That same year, people began to pick up on hints from Ed that the marriage wasn't going very smoothly. At a board meeting where Ed looked under the weather, people were asking him if he was doing okay, if his health was all right. And he said publicly, I think my wife is trying to kill me. I'm married to the meanest woman in the world. <sighs> what? Yeah, I think the wheels are coming off here. Despite his on and off health issues and potentially deteriorating marriage, Ed decided to begin to cultivate support for gubernatorial run in 1991. With the Tennessee Farm Bureau behind him, his prospects looked pretty promising. But that all came crashing down in October of 1991 when he went to the hospital for a routine appendectomy and was diagnosed with adenocarcinoma of the appendix that had already metastasized to some other organs. Oh, no. Yeah, it was cancer. And pretty late stage, the prognosis was not so optimistic. Ed was still able to perform many of his duties from home, so he was able to spend more time recuperating from his treatment. Frustratingly for other loved ones, however, Rainella began to play gatekeeper, keeping even close family away from Ed during this period. In the spring of 1992, Ed's beloved cousin, Elizabeth, traveled 1,200 miles round trip to visit him, only to be turned away at the door by Rainella, who said he was too tired to receive guests and wouldn't even let her into the house to use the bathroom. Oh my God, why? She just said, you can't come in. He's too tired. I don't want him to wake up. I don't want him to be disturbed. You got to leave. And his cousin's like, are you kidding me? I drove 600 miles here and I've drive 600 miles back and I told him I was coming and he was excited about it. Wow. And she said later to author Diane Fanning that she knew that he didn't know she was there because if he had, he would have demanded to see her. Many other friends noted the same cold treatment, though she did allow Kay Walker to visit Ed the afternoon of July 8th, 1992. According to her husband, Steve, she came home extremely distressed. She said that Ed's condition had deteriorated to the point that he was completely bedridden and that he could not walk or talk when she saw him. She said, I'm not even sure if he knew I was there. Now, Kay had a very good reason to be upset. I mean, number one, this is her longtime lover. But number two, the very next day, Ed Dossett was dead. Now, given the cancer, this wouldn't be necessarily a shock, but Ed hadn't died of cancer. He had allegedly died of a cattle stampede. Excuse me, what? A cattle stampede. <laughs> this is really new for us guys. We've had many deaths on love murder, but never a cattle stampede. Okay, so how did this happen? Raynella had a couple different stories about how this very strange death could have occurred. In one version, she said that Ed had requested to go out to the pasture and feed his head of cattle because he valued being a farmer and a working farmer above all else. 
She said that he was feeling good that day, so she helped him out to the pasture. And since he was doing all right, she went back into the house to do some things. When she came back out, the door to the pasture was open and the cattle had gotten out and he was laying like where the gate was clearly trampled to death. So that was one version of the story. Okay. Now, in another version that she gave to the sheriff, she said that she had been with Ed the entire time and that something had spooked the cattle and they surged and she was trying to deal with that. And by the time she turned around to where Ed had been standing, he was already on the ground and the cattle was moving around around him, like moving out. She said that she was so angry at the cattle that she went into the house, got a gun, and shot one of them, the one that she believed had stepped on Ed. She added that she had not actually killed the cow or steer, but she had wounded the animal. By the time Raynella called 911... I thought she was like part of like a shooter team. She can't kill the animal? Yes, but I mean, I don't know if the goal was to kill the animal or was it to like somehow punish the animal? So she's an animal torturer as well. <laughs> she's either a bad shot or she's an animal torturer. Okay. So. Yeah. It was, it's also a weird detail to bring up, which we'll get into a little bit more about why it's so weird later on. But yeah. So by the time she called 911 at 3.30 p.m. on July 9th, 1992, she told the 911 operator that she believed her husband was already dead because he did not have a pulse. So people thought, just like you, that this was fishy for a number of reasons. The first of which being that Kay Walker had noted that Ed was completely bedridden the day before, that he had been unable to walk or talk. So how the hell had he made it out to the pasture and had the strength to feed the cattle at all? Yeah. You're going to be controlling the gate to... Several, how much do they weigh? Like a thousand pounds? Oh, they're gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. Like a thousand pounds for sure. Okay. And that was the other thing was that apparently Ed selected particularly docile cattle. He was known to treat his cattle like pets almost, and they were all extremely gentle. One farmer who had worked on the Dossett farm said, you couldn't blow up a stick of dynamite under that herd and get him to stampede. Ray, Ed's cousin, said, a cow won't even run over a dead or injured animal. If it's still and not moving, they're not going to run over it unless they are forced to back up to where they can't see it. After hearing Raynella's version of events, he could not visualize how it would take place. To him, it sounded like something out of a cowboy and Indian show. That's what he, he said, quote. So then there was the deputy, Jeff Sellers, who said, they're telling us to lie out there. There's not a mark on him. Cows won't step on a man unless they're in a confined space. So anyone who knows better, who knows these specific cows or just knows about cows in general, knows that they're not going to get him, which I have seen occur because on our farm, we had dairy cows when I was little. And now my parents have like cows for beef. But they would be – you'd have a cat in there with them. You'd have a goat. You could be in the stall with them, no problem. And that's in a confined space. It's very, very rare that these things happen when you're not in some sort of situation like you're in Pamplona, the running of the bulls over here. Yeah. Also, there's not a mark on him? Well, so this – we're going to get into his autopsy. Okay. 
that is what one deputy said, that there was not a mark on him. So one of the witnesses said there was not a mark on him all together. And it was a little sketchy that Rinella initially refused to have Ed autopsied altogether until she found out that the double indemnity life insurance policy would not pay out without a medical examiner signing off that he had died of an accident truly and not anything else. Which, yeah. Okay. We've talked about double indemnity in the past, but if you're new to the podcast, it's essentially a clause in a life insurance policy that says if certain terms are met, then they pay out double what they would normally. And these terms are often involved in accidental death or sometimes even homicide. So yeah, she was going to get a certain amount if it had just been cancer, but she would get double if it was an accident. So a guy named Dr. Randall Pettigo performed the autopsy, and he later very freely admitted that if he's in a case where there's some sort of judgment call and it could be a number of factors or things that caused a death, he will err on the one that benefits the family the most or what the family's wishes are. Okay. And he didn't explicitly say so, but I am sure that he erred much more on the side of the family of the district attorney general and this woman that by all accounts, everyone was terrified of. (laughs) (laughs) He said that Ed's breastbone and a couple of ribs were broken and that Ed had one single hoof print on his overalls. So with that in mind, he determined that it was indeed an agricultural accident and he labeled the cause of death trampling by cattle. Now, he also noted that Ed had multiple tumors in his colon, his small intestine, his stomach, his liver, his spleen, and his pancreas, leaving him extremely weakened. Dr. Pedigo did order a tox screen, but he did not wait for the results to come back before issuing the official cause of death. Likely so, Raynella could get the insurance payout sooner rather than delaying the cause of death. Had he waited, though, he would have discovered that there was a lethal dose of morphine in Ed's system. And it should be noted that CPR was attempted and performed on the scene. And very often, there's extensive damage to the breastbone and the rib cage when, you know, aggressive CPR is performed, especially in somebody that has late stage cancer. Yeah. It's already super weakened is already super weakened. So this would all fit with the CPR causing the damage, not the cattle. Now, where he got that one specific hoof print, I don't know. Can't tell you about (laughs) that Come here, cow. Let me put your little hoof on Imagining (laughs) Raynella just giving him a little stamp. That's my hoof. It would have been so much better if she was, instead of saying that she shot at one of these cows and injured it, that she's like, well, I had to take its hoof off for revenge. And then it turned out that that was the same hoof that trampled him. What are the odds? What are the odds? The one trample, the single tramp. The single tramp. So looks like she might have overdosed him on morphine. And she also later on, somebody who worked at the hospital with her will say that oftentimes drugs would go missing when Raynella was working. Oh, coinky dink. I think not. Yeah. 
So most of the community was willing to extend the benefit of the doubt to Rainella, but one deputy went out to the Dossett farm to inspect the cattle and did not find a single one with any sort of injury, lest a bullet hole, like Rainella had oddly claimed. In any case, the authorities and general community decided to not pursue a further investigation. The overwhelming consensus was that a smart man like Ed Dossett knew his situation was terminal. And perhaps he had wanted to set up his family financially as best he could. You know, after they discovered the cancer, he was not able to up his life insurance at all. Of course, no company would allow that. But he could arrange with his wife to meet his end in a way that would double the payout for his family. Yeah. So in the community, there was speculation (laughs) that Ed had been in on it. And because of that, and the fact that he was going to die soon anyway, which you could tell by the autopsy and the amount of tumors in his body, everybody kind of just let it go. It was almost an open secret that she had at least aided him in his death, if not outright killed him for double the insurance money. It's a lot. It's a lot. For like a small farm town. Yeah, tongues are wagging. I mean, that's a hard one to set up, an agricultural accident. Like, we'll get a double payout in case of an agricultural accident, which is a good good clause to have when you're working on a farm because shit, like, happens all the time that's very dangerous on a farm. But to have to, like, figure out how to set it up like that is pretty crazy. So did she try to do CPR on him after she gave him the morphine? I don't understand when paramedics came to the scene, they tried. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if maybe she gave it to him and then didn't realize that she gave him that much and tried to do CPR or whatever. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yep. Got it. Ed was laid to rest on July 11th, 1992, and his funeral was attended by hundreds of people from all walks of life. He had high-ranking political officials, all the way to farmers who Ed had always felt the most kinship with him. They said at the heart of Ed, he was like a farmer. That was like his real big thing. One of his eight pallbearers was childhood friend David Leith. And this is notable because you may remember the name of Rainella's second husband. Yep, Rainella married her husband's oldest friend only six months after Ed's untimely death. So were they having an affair? It seems likely. He was the one that I said she was going over to his pool and hanging out with him after she retired. It seems very likely that Rainella had known about the affair with him and Kay for some time. Yep. And I think that was one of those things. Either they had an understanding that nobody knew about because it was between them and they were both politically minded or it was, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold and she knew, but she didn't tell him she knew. Or poolside. Or poolside. She decided to get back at him by starting an affair with his friend that he'd had since he was eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. So in any case, let's talk about Dave. David Leith was born on October 22nd, 1945, to a power plant machinist father and an elementary school cook mother. David and Ed had met as children because David's mother worked in the same elementary school as Ed's aunt when Ed was taken in by his aunt. Okay. And apparently the two women had to report to school earlier than children had to, to, you know, prepare the classrooms and the cafeteria. So the two boys would just hang out together because they had nothing else to do. Got it. And that's where they kind of 
built this bond, which was, of course, at a time in Ed's life where he really needed close friendships because he had just been orphaned. So David was described as loving, funny, kind, a little cheeky and mischievous. He was very fond of pranks and good-natured hijinks. And Ed and Dave seemed kind of like opposites in some ways. Ed was politically ambitious and he had a law degree, while Dave dropped out junior year of high school. But it did seem like both men had larger-than-life personalities, and they both knew what they wanted because Dave didn't drop out of high school because he was rootless and didn't know what he wanted. He dropped out specifically so he could go to trade school. Okay. Yeah. So he went to barber school. He knew at an early age he wanted to be a barber very much, and he's like, I don't need a high school degree to do this. Why would I waste my time if I can jump right into my career? Do you know about barber shops? Back in the day? I do not. Why they have the spiral sign outside? No. Why? So you can only have the spiral sign outside if you're actually if you actually have barbers inside. Like hair salons can't have the spiral sign outside because the spiral sign stands for blood transfusions, which barbers used to be qualified to perform back in the day. What? Yeah. I did not know that. Are they still qualified to do blood transfusions? I think it's an, at this point just like a historical homage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hangover. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Also, what kind of blood transfusion do you need that you can't make it to the hospital? You just stop at the barber shop. It's so crazy, right? That is so crazy. Yeah. Well, he very specifically wanted to be a barber and he went to barber school and he flourished. He was a great barber. I mean, he not only had the technical skill of cutting hair, But he also had that social side, which you need to be able to maintain a good clientele. You know, so much of that barbershop culture is around having a place to talk and hang out as well as just get your hair cut. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge cultural thing, especially in the South, I feel like a social thing. And especially among Black Americans, which I I don't know if that was his clientele because everybody we're talking about is white in this story. But yes, it was like a a social center. David married his high school sweetheart, Peggy, when they were both only 17 years old. And they went on to have their only child, a daughter named Cindy, a year later in 1963. Unfortunately, as so often happens in marriages between very young people, there was infidelity on Dave's part and the couple separated when Cindy was seven years old. During that same period, Dave suffered a traumatic event in late 1970 that would change his life forever and actually factor into the murder case later on. Dave was chopping wood when a piece of tree bark flew into his eye. Ugh. So this was painful, but Dave just assumed that it was one of those injuries that hurts more because it's in such a sensitive location. Yeah, you need to wear goggles, Dave. I think he learned his lesson. So he just was like, I'm I'm going to sleep it off and tomorrow I'll be fine. But the next day he woke up and his eye was completely swollen and he was in a terrific amount of pain. So he decided to go to the doctor at this point and the doctor told him that his retina had detached oh. and that he was oh. permanently blinded in his left eye. Oh my God. If he would have gone to the doctor right away, would they have been able to fix it or no? I don't know. I don't know. But it certainly was they were unable to do anything about Oof. it the next day. Yeah. You got to always wear goggles when you're working with wood or any type of thing that you're cutting or sawing or it's so important. So important. Yeah. So eventually his eye atrophied and puckered 
leading Dave to become incredibly insecure about his looks. He was always a good-looking guy, so this was a major hit to his ego. And after that, he almost always wore sunglasses, even inside, even when taking pictures. And if he did have to take them off, he wouldn't look directly at somebody he was talking to because he didn't want them to look at his eyes. Oh. Yeah, his daughter would later say that people kind of talked about how he was vain or he was really into his looks. But she said it was only as a reaction to this eye injury that he hadn't been overly concerned with his looks until this happened. And then he felt so insecure about it that he would counterbalance it by he started working out a couple times a day, going to the Y religiously. They would joke that he wore jeans so tight he couldn't wear a wallet because he wanted to show (laughs) off his trim figure. I mean, I feel like everyone has to cope with things in different ways like that, you know? It is just a reaction to him having to adjust his entire, like, outer beauty, you know? Yeah, and he was still a young man at that point. Yeah, that's really hard. It's really hard to not even, like, lose half of your vision and also feel like you're losing part of what makes you you. You know, the eyes are the window to the soul. So at that point, he did get a little, little into his looks. He, throughout the years, would end up investing in a couple different cosmetic procedures. He got hair implants, a tummy tuck, and at some point, a facelift. No. Yeah. See, this is why we just plugged redefining beauty. (laughs) We all need to redefine beauty for ourselves. No facelifts. Come on, bro. No. Yep. Well, Dave remarried in 1979 to a woman named Debbie that he was totally head over heels in love with. But the marriage came to a pretty fast and shocking end when Debbie cheated with her married boss and left Dave to be with him. People love cheating with their married bosses. It's a theme of this episode. Yeah, but, you know, bad news for Debbie was that she left Dave, cleared out, like, took a bunch of the furniture with her. Just, like, he came home one day and it's all gone. But later it turns out that Debbie was a doctor's secretary, so the doctor never left his family and never got together with Debbie. So Karma Fairy is all over this one. Yeah. Take the furniture. You're never going to get your man. (laughs) I mean, not to mention, too, that Dave had cheated on his first wife. So there's, like, a lot of stuff going on here. Just Just get a divorce, guys. Just get a divorce. Totally just get a divorce. Well, Dave became depressed after the second divorce, but he did have some really solid relationships in his life that kept him afloat. His best friend Gordon said that for an outwardly macho type of man, he was deeply empathetic. And Gordon talked about how... Dave had really been there for him when his brother had been very badly injured in the army in 1989 and had like cried with him and emoted with him, which was, you know, not something that's very was typically done in that time frame for like a manly man in the South. And he also said that he also wasn't like the typical macho man either because Dave deplored guns and shooting, which was a rarity, especially in a farming community because... Guns are often necessary to scare predators off of your livestock, also kill livestock. And not to mention that hunting is a very popular pastime in this area. And in Dave's family, it was as well. So the fact that he didn't like guns, wouldn't go near them, and he would even call his friend Gordon if there were some like coyotes on his land. And he'd be like, can you get over here and like scare these coyotes off with your gun? 
is interesting. And it's interesting insofar as how Dave ends up dying later on. You also forgot to mention that people will also use fake guns to fake shoot cattle. Do they? Oh, no. I was making a joke about what oh. Raynella said. <laughs> I was like, wait, how do you know something I don't know? Because I'm like, you know, imagine like a, like a rubber gun and somebody be like, bang, bang, cows, bang, bang. Bang, bang. <laughs> Go away. Bang, bang. Yes, you're right. They also, when they get angry, they pretend to shoot cows as well. Yes. A typical revenge tactic. Yes. After they have trampled your husband with one hoof. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They have very delicately one hoofed your husband to death. So, yeah, Dave's spirits were lifted by his daughter, Cindy. The two had enjoyed a close relationship throughout her entire life, despite the fact that her parents divorced. Like, she often went with him to NASCAR races, and they had their own bonding. Yeah, it was really cute. They had a good, good relationship. She said, like, the very beginning, right after the divorce, it was a little hit or miss. Of course. But then he seemed to really relax into his role as a single dad with her. And she loved him and respected him so much that she actually followed in his footsteps and became a barber. Stop it. That's so cute. And exactly like you said, Andy, not a hairstylist, a a barber. barber. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really cute. When he retires, she actually takes over his chair. Oh. Isn't that so symbolic? Yeah. Without the same name. I know. Yeah. And so it's it's really cute. And also she had her first child around this time as well. And he doted on that boy. It was a little baby boy. And apparently Dave was just obsessed with him. Like it was a joke that he was like more into his grandson than his daughter. <laughs> so Dave also spent a lot of time with his old friend Ed, helping Ed Dossett out so often on the Dossett farm that he was frequently mistaken for Ed's farmhand. Throughout the fall of 1991, in the summer of 1992, Dave went to church and prayed for his oldest friend's recovery. Well, it seemed that God answered an entirely different set of prayers because, well, he did end up losing his dear friend Ed in July. He had his first date with Raynella in late August, and the couple was married on January 9th, 1993. People were a little shocked by this new pairing. Obviously, there was the initial shock of how fast it moved. Even Dave's loved ones were like, whoa, I mean, he's not even cold, man. Like, they didn't think he had any ill intentions or even Raynella did. They just were like, you know, people are going to say this is too soon, man. But at the same time, there was genuine love between the two of them, even though they did seem like opposites because Raynella had this reputation as a strident, elegant, highly educated politician's wife. Well, Dave was more the fun-loving high school dropout barber who loved NASCAR. Yeah. So on the outset, they looked very different. I was explaining this to Nathaniel, and he's like, oh, so like Gwen Stefani and Blake Shelton. (laughs) Where it's like, I couldn't have really saw those two together, but now they're together and I get it, or I kind of like it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they had that sort of thing where people were confused at the beginning, but then when they got to know them, they saw – all of these myriad ways that they really cared for one another. For instance, like Raynella, who had a very tough exterior and was known as a tough cookie, would dote on him. She started his car in the morning for him so it'd be warmed up. She would bring him lunch every single day at the barber shop. 
she was doing all of these very loving, sweet things for him. And he built her a greenhouse. He got her a vanity license plate that read Nell Nell, which was his nickname for her. I feel like even if you're super different, if you guys talk each other's love language, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. As long as you respect each other and you enjoy each other's company and like you said, you talk each other's love languages and you do these kind things for each other. It doesn't matter whether you have exactly the same interests exactly. or education level or any of those things. So yeah, they were very, very happy for the first couple of years. Apparently, even Raynella, who very famously was not into NASCAR, ended up going to Daytona for the races with him the first couple of years of their marriage because he liked it so much. Cute. Throwback to yeah. Daytona from last week. Exactly. There's a through line here. Well, unfortunately, the honeymoon didn't last very long, but this is not because of love lost between Raynella and Dave, but it was undone by one tragic loss and another shocking revelation that would lead to Raynella's first arrest. Oof. So the first terrible thing that happened was that Raynella's 15-year-old eldest daughter, Maggie, caused a fatal car crash in December of 1994. Oh, no. And the victim was, sadly, her own younger brother, Eddie Jr. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's devastating. So Maggie apparently failed to yield to traffic while getting on a highway, and she turned directly into the path of another driver who Wait, could not stop she in time. 15? She's 15 years old. So should old. she not yep. be driving? She had a learner's permit. Okay. And we're going to get into why this was controversial. Because she's a 15-year-old girl with her learner's permit. And there's a question about whether or not Raynella was in the car with her. <gasps> which, of course, an adult has to be in the car when somebody with a learner's permit is driving. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So she was yielding? So, yes. Yeah, so she was supposed to yield to traffic. It's like one of those things. Like you're – it's one of those areas where she wasn't exactly like merging on like a ramp or anything. But there was like a a clear stop and it says yield to traffic before you turn on to some sort yeah. of highway. Yep. And she didn't stop and she didn't look. And she ended up turning on this highway directly in front of a driver who did not have the time to stop and therefore broadsided the truck. Jesus. Yeah, this was bad news bear. So it very viciously hurt the other driver. It was a guy named Michael Carpenter. And it flew Eddie Jr. out of the car. He went through the, I think, the windshield or the window. And he landed in the road. Oh, my God. So they did rush him to the hospital. But unfortunately, he succumbed to his injuries. He was only, I think, 13 years old. <sighs> yeah. So, like I said, Renella came under some suspicion because later it had come to light that she lied about being in the car at the time. Maggie was only 15 years old and a adult needed to be in the car with her at all times. So Renella could have been on the hook for the accident. One of her neighbors was first to arrive on the scene of the accident because he happened to be there when it happened. And he said that Raynella was not in the car when the accident occurred. You would know. That would be the first thing you'd be like, where is your mother? Like, first thing. Exactly. And it happened, the neighbor said, that another woman who was friends with Raynella also happened to be around the spot at the same time as the accident. When she saw that it was the Dossett's truck, 
she drove up to the farm and got Raynella and brought her back down to the scene where Raynella pretended she had been in the car. Not cool. No, and it was it was a little obvious if anyone ever thought about it because she didn't have a scratch on her for being in this major collision while both Eddie and the other driver, Michael Carpenter, were in critical condition and Maggie was also injured. So she was in the car but somehow didn't get any injuries whatsoever. Also, if your son got flung out of a windshield, you'd be over next to him the second it happened. Yeah. You wouldn't be chasing up to the scene. Well, yeah. I mean, they said that – I mean, she wasn't there. So the person went and got her, and then she was by her son's side. But she said, I was in the car, and then I was at my son's side, and she just believed that no one was going to refute her. Now, the other driver was critically injured, so he wasn't conscious to say anything about it. Maggie is, of course, not going to say anything because she doesn't want to get into trouble, and her son is now deceased. So there was only one person here – that noticed what was going on, a couple. I mean, it was her friend who was going to cover for her. And there was also her neighbor. And eventually, according to her deadly web, Ed's cousin Ray asked this neighbor why he didn't speak to the authorities about Maggie driving without an adult in the car. And he said it was because of fear. He was afraid of Raynella. He said, Ray, she could set out in her driveway and shoot me in my home. He said also that he thought it would be a waste of time anyway. He didn't think law enforcement would believe a poor black farmer over the wealthier white prosecutor's widow. So he, I mean, he was right. I mean, he was like, why am I going to put myself out there? She finds out that I told and then she comes after me. Yeah. For what? No protection. I have no protection whatsoever. So yeah. The next month, the district attorney general, who was good friends with Raynella because she had helped to get him elected, recommended to law enforcement that charges be brought to Michael Carpenter, the driver of the other car. (laughs) Now, it didn't help that Michael Carpenter had been driving without a proper license because he had a prior DUI. But everybody who looked at the scene knew that it was Maggie's fault. So when the... And DA pushed them to bring charges to Michael Carpenter and pretty much ignore Maggie and Raynella. The Tennessee Highway Patrol said, no, look, we investigated this and Maggie is completely culpable. So they cited Maggie with failure to yield, but then the prosecutor moved for dismissal and the request was granted. Wow. So power. Nothing ever happened to Maggie and Raynella because of their connections. And this is an important example because it already shows how Raynella is willing to lie and how she is able to use her political influence for her own power and her own reasons. Even after her husband is gone. Yeah. I mean, she worked herself into the political landscape very well. Yeah. Well, the hits just kept coming because Steve and Kay Walker ended up getting a divorce after Kay left Steve for another man. Surprise, surprise. The custody dispute grew ugly, and Kay revealed through her attorney, to Steve's astonishment, that one of his sons was not his biological (gasps) child. I knew it! I knew it! It was Ed's. And Maury Povich says, You are not the father. And Ed Dossett, in your grave, you are the father. Wow. Yeah, so Kay had done a blood test, she said. So this proved that at least the second son 
was Ed Dossett's. Yeah. But here's the thing is that Steve had grown up with a completely different father than his biological father. So he knew that you did not have to be a biological father to be a father and that he was that child's father. So he was very confident and that did not shake his resolve in the custody agreement whatsoever. And he was like, screw you. Like, he's my son. I'm going to fight for my son. Yeah. She's just trying to hurt him. Yeah. And it was also a good ploy because she was basically saying to the court proceedings, he's not his father anyways. He's a third party because he has no biological relationship to this child. But it didn't work because Steve did eventually get custody of the two boys. So Steve said that when he found this out, obviously it didn't change anything about how he felt about his child, but they did agree to keep it under wraps. They didn't want their kids to know or have it become gossip in town. Okay. But he said that he still was under the impression that Raynella knew. And he found that out for sure that she knew in April of 1995 when she asked Steve to come over to the Dossett farm. And she told him at that point that she was aware that one or both of his sons could actually be biologically related to her late husband. At that point, they commiserated about the infidelity, about all the times they got together socially and the two of them had possibly not known what was going on when it was going on. And Rinella was saying some insulting things about Kay. She called her a devil in a red dress. Very genteel insulting things, devil in a red dress. But this is interesting because less than a month after this conversation, Raynella had lunch with Kay and it seemed like they were still friendly. So it was almost like she was acting like she was more angry with Kay than she was to Steve specifically. And six days after Raynella had lunch with Kay, she showed up at Steve Walker's job and said, hey, Steve, I found some papers in my barn. And they seem to prove that both of your sons belong to Ed. And I really think that you should come look at them, take them with you, do with them what you want. But I wanted you to have them, not Kay. And so Steve was really confused. He's like, okay, like it still doesn't matter. He's getting his kids no matter what. It doesn't matter to him really. But he's like, I guess I, I need to have these documents because I need to protect myself in this custody battle. So he decided to go with her. So she put him in the truck. They drove to the Dossett farm. And Ed is buried on the Dossett farm property because he wanted to be buried there. And so she drove over to where his headstone was. And she said at that point, well, you must be really mad at him. That's where the bastard is. I wouldn't even care if he went and pissed on his grave. Why don't you go piss on his grave? And Steve was like, I'm good. Thanks. I'll pass. I'll pass. You know, I went back at the transmission shop. So <laughs> nothing left in the tank. No, thank you. And from there, it just got weirder. <laughs> This is Steve's account as told to Diane Fanning. So after he said, no, thank you, she then drove him down to this barn and she told him that the papers were in this position down at the other side of the barn and instructed him where to find them. And so he went over to the spot that she had indicated and he realized that she had said it was like in this bucket and instead the bucket was full of paint so at first, he just assumed he was looking in the wrong place, as we all would. Yeah. 
But then he turned around to get clarification, like, oh, there's just pain in here. Is there another bucket? And when he turned around, he was terrified to see that Raynella had a towel wrapped around her hand. And in the towel, she clutched a revolver. She fired two 38 caliber shots in his direction and shouted, I'll kill you, you bastard, and your ex-wife, and then I'll raise your son. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so he's like, what the fuck is going on? So he managed to get out of the barn. There was like an entrance and an exit like on each end. And so she was coming in one way, coming in hot with the gun. And he managed to run out the other side. And Raynella's after him with the gun. And so he like ran down this hill into this wooded area. And he hears her get into the truck and start like, like running like driving around the property to like be on the other side of the wooded area when he came out so he is like running for his life at this point and he tries to get away from her. he has to he's gonna go over this fence because the truck can't drive through the fence so he goes to jump over the fence but he's panicking and he ends up spraining his ankle so badly that he can no longer walk so he's on the ground sprained ankle and she's approaching like it's a horror movie now she's got the gun out and so she's a coming for him oh my god and she said steve i used to be a better shot than that but i can't miss you from here like where she's standing at the fence and she was aiming down at his head steve said at that point he knew he was about to die Raynella pulled the trigger again but the gun clicked the barrel was empty. <gasps> Did he tackle her? He still has the, like the very badly sprained ankle and he's like in shock. And so he's looking at her and he said that at that point, her whole demeanor changed. She went from like Rambo Terminator to like genteel Southern lady again. And she was like, oh, oh my gosh. Well, Steve, look how things have gone on. Let me get you something. Wrap your foot up. Come on up into the house and we'll talk about this. We'll talk it out. I mean, how silly did things get? He's like, lady, I'm not going anywhere with you. Are you kidding me? Yeah. He said he was not fooled one bit, <gasps> but he just wanted to get the gun out of her hand more than anything. So he's going to like play along a little bit. So he said, okay, like I'll come with you, but I don't really trust you now. Can you leave that gun on the ground? And she said, okay, look, I'll make an act of good faith. And so she dumped the empty cartridges from the gun and laid the weapon on the fence post. He got up, limped over, grabbed the gun, and then he like limped as fast as he could away to try to get down into the road and try to find a house because he didn't have his car because she had picked him up. So he's like limping through the woods now trying to find a house he went up to one house he knocked on the door and either no one was home or no one let him in then he like limped through the woods and like across the country lane and he found a mobile home and those people finally let him in and he had to call a friend to come pick him up so he's on this odyssey with a badly sprained ankle and a empty gun and when she realizes he took off and she's well in trouble at this point she drove her truck back to her house she called the police and she said, I don't know what's going on. Steve Walker just came up all in my property saying some crazy shit. And he pissed on my husband's grave. And then he was coming after me and I was scared. So I got my gun and he managed to wrestle it away from me and stole it and took off. So I'm calling to say that he trespassed and he stole my gun. So this is also theft. So she calls to get her story out ahead of his. 
Wow. Meanwhile, Kay is kind of sketchy too because remember they had had that lunch six days before this happened. And during this, before anyone knows what's going on, Kay called the daycare provider of the two boys and told the daycare provider that her husband had gone crazy and that she was not to release the children to his custody because he was going off the deep end. Wow. This is wild. Did they Were they in cahoots? Well, so that's what the speculation is. Kay was never proven to be in cahoots with Raynella, but when Steve got his story out to the police, it was interesting because both Raynella and Kay lawyered up, but no official charges were ever brought against Kay. So it's so anyone's shady. best guess if she was involved or not, because it would have stood to benefit her too. I mean, they could have made a deal where why Raynella didn't want him alive was because it was at that point, either it was likely he was getting custody or he had gotten custody. I wasn't sure exactly of the timing, but it was clear he was getting custody of the kids. Now her son, Eddie Jr., has died at this point. So she's thinking that she doesn't have a hold on Steve. She can't control him. What if he sues on behalf of his son for some right portion of the inheritance based on his son or sons being the only biological son heir of the farm? Because I think the farm is supposed to stay in like the boy's side because it keeps the name. So I think Raynella was trying to keep his child's hands off of her estate. And I'm sure that, and this is, no one was charged, so this is alleged, she could have pulled Kay into it and said, well, I got a way we can go about this if you, you're you on my side where you can get your kids back and I can make sure that my fortune is protected. So the authorities listened to both sides of this and they decided that they were going to go with Steve. They said, Steve is right. Steve has a way more compelling story than Raynella's interesting story. And at that point, the same district attorney general who had helped Raynella out before said, you know what? I've done all I can for you. He actually recused himself. He said that he was unable to prosecute Raynella because they were actually good friends. Huh. So she wasn't getting out of this one. Uh-uh. And he was trying to, sounds like, legally sidestep this situation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know what? I I think my I've paid back whatever help you provided for me to get elected. He's here. going back into the bush like this. <laughs> he's doing the Homer Simpson. <laughs> Out. <laughs> he also said that his office should not prosecute her at all because a lot of people who worked for him, too, were still loyal to the Dossets. Yeah. So this was a thorny situation, and everyone wanted this to be worked out as quietly and quickly as possible. Even Steve, I mean, he his lawyer said you can sue her for a lot of money personally. Like, you can do it in civil court. And they started a, a suit and then Steve said it was too much. He goes, I just want it to be over. I don't I don't want to. I don't even care if I get money from her. I do not want to be involved in this. I don't want my kids involved in this. I'm not doing it. And as a result, he also accepted on the criminal side that she would take a plea. He said that his only stipulation was that she admitted that she tried to kill him because she had been telling people around town that he was like crazy and pissing on 
her husband's grave. And so he's like, I just want her to say what she did. And then I'm cool. And so she did. She said that she tried to kill Steve. She did not say why. And she took a guilty plea for assault. So she pled down to assault. And she was given six years of diversion, which it generally means, I think we've talked about this before. In this case, it means that if she does anything else bad, then she's going to be officially charged and like it will be on her record that she was convicted of assault. However, if she reaches the end of the six-year period with no other blemishes on her record, then it'll be expunged. Got it. So she did so, and she went through the six years without any incident after that. That must have been really hard for her. <laughs> well, we don't know. Maybe she got away with something. Possible. So after Raynella's slap on the wrist, the rest of the 90s passed by pretty peacefully. They watched their kids grow up, her and Dave. The older kids were already out of the house. Cindy had another child, so Dave became a grandfather once more. And it seemed like they were in a good space for the most part until Dave went to a neurologist in early 2000 complaining of disorientation and confusion. The neurologist said that based on tests, it looked like Dave had had a mini stroke at some point, and he was dealing with the resulting neurological issues as well as some general health problems. He had high cholesterol, and he also had prostate issues. Okay. So Raynella claims that he was very disoriented. He was forgetting things left and right. He was basically experiencing dementia at this point. But all of Dave's colleagues and friends who saw him every single day said that that was absolutely not true that there was no mental confusion. He seemed just like he always had. But in March of 2000, Dave did decide to retire, and that's when he passed his chair on to his daughter, Cindy. Raynella would say this was because he couldn't operate anymore because of the dementia, whereas Cindy said, no, it was his prostate problem because you can't stand and cut hair for very long periods of time if you have to pee every five minutes. Yeah. So she said that was the only health-related reason for retiring, but he also was getting to an age. He was, you know, in his late 50s at this point, and he wanted to retire. He wanted to be done. He had been doing it since he was 17 years old. That's a long time. So Dave was plunging into enjoying retired life, but it seemed like Raynella was planning an altogether different future for him. She visited a place called Cremation Options on March 1st of the same month that he had retired, and she told the man who owned it that her husband was very, very ill and she prepaid for his cremation and her own. We've seen this before. Yeah, we Can't have. go casket shopping before. Can't go casket shopping or cremation shopping before, before the hubs is dead. Yes, unless you go together, like your your yeah. family planning, your estate planning, and you're both there saying these are our plans for the future, and you're making a legal document. That's one thing. But when there's one spouse that's mysteriously missing from this planning sketch. excursion, very sketch indeed. So one full year after that, miraculously, her very ill husband is still alive, and he began to see a neurologist at least once a year, and then in the following year, he got more treatment from this neurologist. Now, the neurologist did say that he believed that Dave was experiencing at least mild dementia. But the problem about this is, is that the reason why he was ascribing characteristics of dementia to Dave was for a couple reasons. Number one was because of the things Raynella was telling him. She's like, I'm a nurse. I 
I have seen this, this, he's experiencing this, this, and this. I I've lived it. I'm dealing with it with him. And then Dave told the doctor privately that he believed that his wife was trying to kill him and that he had woken up and she was smothering him in his sleep. And the doctor thought that he was just experiencing paranoid ideation, which is a hallmark of dementia. Yeah. Now, later on, it would turn out that Dave had a very good reason to suspect that his wife was trying to kill him. In early 2003, Raynella began to keep a diary of Dave's moods and memory loss and good days and bad days. And Dave's neurologist began to suspect that Dave may have the beginning of Alzheimer's or even maybe semi-advanced Alzheimer's, but he was not convinced enough to fully officially diagnose him because there was a lot of Dave's illness that didn't just match up perfectly to Alzheimer's. Okay. Though most of his loved ones were not aware that Dave was struggling at all with his memory or, you know, mental health, they were aware that he seemed unhappy in his decade-long marriage but he did refuse to give it up because he said that he had already gone through two divorces, that he wasn't going to do it again, that when he married Rainella, he said, this is it. This is it until one of us dies. I'm not going to throw away another marriage. Okay. So he was determined to keep this marriage going. Then life really kicked him in the balls when his mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh, no. I know. So much has gone on here. So Dave's mother had surgery on February 25th of 2003 and recuperated in the hospital for a few weeks afterwards. Dave seemed as healthy as ever when he took his mother from the hospital one day to get her hair done and he ended up chatting with a hairstylist. It was somebody he knew. So he's telling the hairstylist that he's planning on going to this car show later that month and that he was really excited because his best friend Gordon was finally retiring as well. So they're going to be retired together. And they were planning this vacation that the two of them were going to take like a buddy's retirement trip. And they were supposed to take that in a couple months when Gordon retired. So he was like totally with it, totally excited about the future. And he certainly seemed like a man who had a lot going on in his life. So anyone who regularly saw him and saw how vibrant he still was, was very surprised when Dave ended up dead less than two weeks after this conversation. Uh... On March 13th, Raynella stopped by the hospital to bring flowers to her mother-in-law who was still recovering. Now, this was very out of character because not only did the two women not like each other at all, Dave had begged Raynella to come visit his mother earlier and, and, you know, she was a nurse. So he's like, you have experience with this. I want to make sure she's getting the best care. You can look at her chart and tell me things. But Raynella had always said no because she said that she had a compromised immune system due to some sort of liver disease that she had. So she's like going to a hospital would be too risky for me because everyone's sick. So Raynella had previously never visited his mother. But all of a sudden, March 13th, Sometime between 9 and 10, a nurse who knew her saw her in the halls with the flowers, and she said, oh, I'm going to see my mother-in-law. And then Cindy got a call at the barbershop, which also was very weird because Cindy said that not once ever had Raynella ever called her at work. So this was also strange yep. because she said, have you seen Dave? 
And Cindy said, no, I mean, he's usually he he when he went into retirement, he kind of slept late. So she's like, he's probably still in bed. And she's like, well, I just want to make sure that he's not going to the YMCA and working out on an empty stomach. I made him some food and put it side his bed, but I didn't know if he ate it. So I wanted to see if he stopped by to see you. And what? Cindy was like, no, this is really weird. Why? Like, also, he's a grown man. Are you, why are you checking to see if he's working out on an empty stomach? So Cindy got off that phone call. And then, according to Raynella, she drove back to the farm and she entered the house. She didn't see Dave. She called out for him and she found him in their bedroom, in bed, with a bullet in his head. What? So she called 911. The 911 call is, she sounds very upset. She sounds very panicked. She said, my husband shot himself. Get here quick. Come help him. My husband shot himself. This call was logged at 11.23 in the morning. When the paramedics arrived, they found Raynella beside herself, screaming, screaming, screaming for them to help her husband. In the couple's bedroom, they found 57-year-old David Leith with a black hole in his forehead over his left eye, surrounded by a lot of gunpowder stippling or stipling, which was consistent with a shot being fired at close range. Dave was nude. He had a pillow underneath his head and a pillow between his legs. He was laying on his right side. And beside his left hand was an old blue steel Colt 38 revolver. Investigator Perry Moyers arrived on the scene at 1151 and almost immediately thought that the scene was fishy. Wow. First off, Reynola didn't have a drop of blood on her. Even a layperson would likely grab or hug, embrace, attempt CPR, do something for their loved one. clearly injured loved one. Yeah. But Raynella was a nurse and she hadn't even tried to perform CPR. Then there was the fact that Dave really appeared to be sleeping. He was under the covers where the pillows were. It was like somebody was in bed, you know? It would be a very odd way to position yourself when you're going to kill yourself, to be nude and have this awkward angle for trying to shoot yourself. And speaking of that angle, he is blind in his left eye. And in order to shoot himself the way the scene was set up, he would have to do it with his left hand, which is not his dominant hand, with only his blind eye able to see how the gun was pointed at him. Yeah. With something as important as making sure that you had the right shot to truly end your life and not just end up maimed, you would think you would use your right hand. You would think. You would think. Also, there was the fact that everybody said that he didn't own guns. He didn't like guns. Now, this was Raynella's gun, but he had obviously he had access to it. He never shot guns. He didn't like them. So this would be a very bizarre way for him to choose to go out. And no note was found at the scene that indicated this was actually a suicide. So the investigators asked Raynella, okay, so you immediately jumped to the conclusion that this is a suicide. Why is that? Was there something in his life that was going on that he's been very distressed about? And she said, well, we just found out just now. 
that his mother has cancer and he's taking it very hard. But he had known that his mother had cancer for well over a month. I mean, she was recuperating from surgery like some three weeks earlier. So that is an easily debunked thing that she he just found out. And it was like this devastating emotional moment for him. And at that point, she was like, well, you know, at least he's at rest. Like, she just found out. She did put on a good show. She cried. She was upset. But then when she's talking to investigators, she's like, I'm just so glad he's at rest now. Maybe he can finally be at peace. And then she's like, oh, by the way, he also, he didn't want anyone to know, but he had dementia. So I'm sure that didn't help either. And I have this journal here that I'll give you that will give you, you know, the last couple months of his descent into dementia. I wrote down every good day, every bad day, all the stuff that was going on so you can see what his frame of mind was. So this is her journal. This is her diary of his feelings, not him writing his his feelings. And later on, Cindy would go through these dates with the investigators and there was clear lies. There's like one day where she wrote, not himself, hateful, sick, confused, can't even get out of bed, was in bed all day. And Cindy's like, that same day, my dad and I went to go visit my grandmother at the hospital and he was totally fine. So I know that this entire journal is a lie. Bullshit. Yeah. Total bullshit. Most importantly, though, there were three bullets and bullet holes found at the scene. And it appeared that the first bullet had grazed like the top of Dave's head and gone in the headboard. The second shot was the one that connected. And they could figure this out because for some reason there was different bullets in the chamber. So then the second bullet undisputedly was the one that went into his brain and killed him. But then there was a third (laughs) bullet and gunshot after he was dead. So what the hell? Like, how did he shoot? the gun again after he was already deceased. Well, Rinella wasted no time telling the community that her husband had killed himself. And she did try to immediately have him cremated, but the state insisted that he must have an autopsy because this was not clear that it had been suicide by any stretch of the imagination. And while they were getting the autopsy, which, by the way, the medical examiner said, oh yeah, this is a homicide. She immediately classified it as a homicide because there was no way he could have shot himself like that. Other loved ones spoke to the detectives about the things that struck them as odd. And again, going back to all of his friends and family said he's blind in his left eye and he's right-hand dominant. There's no way that it would go down like this. And I, I personally can't imagine deciding that I wanted to do that and then risking it with my non-dominant hand. They also said that Dave was afraid of guns, like I said. And here's another thing that's really interesting because both sides later try to use his pride in himself for their own purposes. Later on, the defense is going to say he killed himself because he had Alzheimer's and he was too proud to let anyone have to take care of him or to not maintain his ability to communicate clearly and coherently. But his loved ones said... Yeah, if he is so proud, then why would he commit suicide in the nude laying down in bed? That's not really the hallmark of a proud, confident man who's trying to not be a burden to his family. They also said that he was a church-going man who 
believed that the body should be whole when it is returned to heaven and to Christ and not be cremated and that he had actually made clear to a couple people in talking about these sort of things that he never wished to be cremated, which is what she did as soon as the body was released from the medical examiner. So Dave's daughter, Cindy, was absolutely perplexed and thrown and grieving during this period. The investigators weren't crazy because Raynella was already lawyering up. It seemed like she was already kind of pulling strings to get this just classified as a suicide and closed. And while Cindy was trying to like work everything out, she discovered that Raynella was still visiting her grandmother in the hospital, which was very weird, but she knew that she was going to get her grandmother transferred to a different hospital. And then she would be able to say that she doesn't want Raynella to visit her because what had happened was grandmother was recovering. So she needed to be in sort of a rehabilitation center rather than like a full-on hospital. And Raynella had pulled strings to get her in a care center or hospital that she had worked at rather than the rehabilitation center that Dave and Cindy had wanted her to go to and she wanted to go to. Okay. And so Cindy had worked to get it switched back so that she could go to the right place. And she's like, Raynella can visit her all she wants because as soon as I get her in the right place, like I'm going to cut it off. And she didn't think too much of it. But then a month after Dave was killed, his mother died in the hospital as well. Oh, no. Yeah. So Cindy and Dave's best friend Gordon believed that Raynella had somehow tampered with something in the hospital where she had connections to also end the grandmother's life. Wow. That's so tragic. Yes. And that was speculation on their part because there was no charges ever filed for that. But suspicion was heightened when it turned out that Dave's mother had left her estate an entire farm and land to him. And Dave had left his entire estate completely to Raynella. So if they both die... She gets everything. Yeah. Soon, even Raynella's former nursing students were calling the cops to tell them that they believed she was controlling, vengeful, and capable of murder. And they were so scared of her that they were like, please don't use my name. I'll come and talk to you, but you can't release my name because that's how scared they were of Raynella. With the sketchy crime scene, the one already mysteriously killed husband and that probation period time served for attempted murder... The investigators were very sure that they had the right woman who had killed her husband. But due to Raynella's political and social standing, nearly three years later, there had been no action in the investigation and certainly no arrest for Raynella. As you can imagine, Cindy was unbelievably frustrated that Raynella was getting away with her father's murder. And also, Again, because it was this open secret that people believe she had something to do with her first husband's murder. So she filed a civil suit that would revoke Raynella's inheritance from David. According to a Tennessee state law, which I think that they have this law in most places, a person cannot profit from a death that they caused. Okay. In court, Raynella's side argued that Dave had indeed been sick with dementia and willingly chose to end his life before his condition advanced. 
Dave's neurologist testified that he had exhibited signs of dementia. He was on medication for his memory, and they were still evaluating whether or not he had Alzheimer's, which, by the way, the medical examiner said in his autopsy, there was absolutely no sign of Alzheimer's. Okay. On Cindy's side, several colleagues, family, and friends testified that Rinella's account was wrong. In the days leading up to his death, Dave had been, of course, worried about his mother, who was still recovering from having surgery. But other than that, he was in a completely good-spirited, coherent state. There was absolutely nothing that would have even alarmed them about dementia, let alone that he was so concerned with it that he was close to killing himself. The judge ruled that there was sufficient evidence that Raynella had killed Dave and therefore they were going to let the lawsuit go to trial. Good. Yeah. And with that, with the fact that another judge had already said, yeah, there's enough evidence here for that, the DA, who was a new guy, by the way, he had won an election over the last guy that was kind of in Raynella's pocket. He said with that, he was able to go forward and finally charge her with the murder of David Leith. So Raynella Dossett Leith was arrested for Dave's murder on November 28th, 2006. So at this point, of course, many of Ed's loved ones really wanted her to also be charged for Ed's death. They wanted to make sure that there was a reckoning for that murder as well. To that end, the state requested that Ed Dossett be exhumed from his resting place on the family farm so that another autopsy could be performed. Now, you may recall that there was an autopsy for Ed of that rather careless doctor who said, you know, I defer to the family anyway. Well, there was some very good legal reasons why they should re-autopsy Ed, not just because now they're suspecting that she's a murderess, but also because since then the medical examiner's medical license had been revoked and he had gone to jail for some really horrible things. Dr. Pettigo had not only overprescribed strong opiate type of drugs and taken quite a load for himself, he had used these strong painkillers and I think uh, some other type of um, like anesthesia type drugs, like really like knock you out type stuff, to drug teenage boys and young men in their early 20s so that he could undress them while they were passed out, do God knows what to them take Polaroids of their nude bodies and then redress them and pretend it never happened. Whoa. Yeah. So it turns out that this guy had some sort of unofficial program or mentor thing. So he would take young boys in their older teens or early 20s who wanted to eventually go to medical school and he would offer to let them shadow him and be like basically in an internship with him. And then, you know, he'd get to a certain level of comfort. He'd say, oh, we're working late. Why don't you stay over at my house? And then tomorrow morning, we'll, you know, hit rounds hard in the morning. And then at that point, he would say like, oh, you know, not to get worn down, you need like a shot of B12. So I'll give you like a minor like painkiller to like take the edge off. And then I'll, I'll shoot you with this, this B12 shot or whatever. And so he would give it to them then, of course, they would lose consciousness. And one boy who was 16 years old became the whistleblower because he actually woke 
up at one point and was groggy, but he knew he was nude and he knew that the doctor was next to him also nude, it appeared. He couldn't, like, he was very foggy, fuzzy because he was drugged. And then he fell back into sleep and the next morning his clothes were on, but they were on in an odd way and he couldn't shake that feeling that something had gone really wrong. So he told his mother and they ended up like telling the police so that an investigation could start. And this got very dramatic, very fast, because when the police went to bring him in for questioning, now he was not arrested right away. They just went to his house and they said, hey, you know, we've got to bring you down to the station. We've heard some very serious allegations against you. We just want to hear your side of it. He said, oh, you know what? Let me go change. And then I'm I'm very happy to come with you. And so he went downstairs came back up with a gun, started shooting at the police. He didn't hit anyone. They managed to shoot him three times, but he was still alive. And it was clear that it was a suicide by cop situation because while he was bleeding from his injuries, he was begging the closest police officer to finish the job. Just finish it off. Let me die. And he survived. And he went to trial. When the police searched his house, they not only found an arsenal of almost 100 weapons, including a machine gun. Oh, my God. They also found 60 Polaroids of young men anywhere from the age of 14 to 22, totally nude, and all passed out. And they also found a collection of 100 images of passed out patients that he had treated. Oh, my God. And it seems, I mean, put two plus two equals four, that he maybe sexually assaulted these victims too, but nobody knew for sure because they had been passed out. So this was a very, very hard case. It's stomach churning. These poor boys and men who didn't even know if they had been sexually assaulted. I mean, think about all of the women who are date raped constantly and wake up just, you don't, the feeling of not knowing what happened to you. And especially in a place like the South in this time period too, and like just any time period, like when it's like not your sexuality and you don't like, you know, like they were like, what does that mean? And what does that make me? And, you know, it's like shakes everything up. Yeah. Even though obviously when somebody is molested or assaulted or something, it has nothing to do with any, like anyone's sexuality. It just, it, it was like, it called into this, these complicated feelings in this question. And also as a result, some of these victims didn't want to come forward and they didn't want to testify because they didn't want their names out there publicly as a victim. It was just, it was a tough case. So we could do an episode just on that. It was an insane story that, you know, if you guys want to hear more about, read Her Deadly Web by Diane Fanning. But wow. So obviously there is also a reason that they deserve to have another autopsy because that business was, there's Polaroids from that period when he did Ed Dossett's autopsy. So clearly he wasn't in a good state of mind. So There's many reasons why they should redo this autopsy. But, of course, Raynella had a very, very high-profile, expensive defense attorney who really managed to stall and effectively block and prevent them from digging up Ed, who's also on her land. So there was a lot of ways that they were able to put this off and put this off. And even though 
potentially they could have used something about that autopsy to help in Dave's case. It was taking so long that they were like, screw it. We might not have been able to get it in anyway. Let's just go forward with the murder trial for David Leith. So that trial began in May of 2009. And the prosecution contended that Raynella had killed David to inherit his family's estate. Well, the defense argued that David had killed himself out of pride as he descended further into dementia. Dr. Darinka Malusinik Polchan, Knox County's chief medical examiner and the one who had autopsied Dave, testified that it was impossible for Dave to have shot himself. She said that the fatal shot had been 12 to 14 inches away from his head and it had been through his forehead above his left eye, the one he was blind in, with his left hand. It seemed impossible that he would have been able to land a shot. Moreover, he also had a cocktail of unprescribed drugs in his system that she said would have made it impossible for him to be able to do anything at all. The amount of these drugs would have made it impossible for him to probably keep his eyes open, to stand, to get himself to the bathroom. She said also that it appeared on the scene and by everything she saw that Dave had been sleeping when he was killed. I mean, there was the position of his body. There was the fact that he had a full bladder and an empty stomach, which is what we're like when we wake up in the morning. So she said there was no even question in her mind whether or not this was a suicide. She very confidently labeled it a homicide and she stood by that. The defense argued, though, that Raynella had no gunpowder residue on her hands, while Dave did on his left hand. They said that it was possible that Dave had been holding the gun still. When he died, his body spasmed, causing his fingers to squeeze the trigger once more. And that was why he was able to get a shot off after he had killed himself. Okay. The prosecution naturally countered that how they saw it going down was that Raynella had panicked when she did the first shot that she, you know, was shaking or was, you know, about to take her husband's life and had maybe even closed her eyes. So it was like she was separated from doing it. And so she had actually missed on the first shot. And then she landed the second shot, and then she realized that she needed gunpowder residue on his hand. So she took the left hand, probably not thinking about it too much, and shot again to get the gunpowder residue on his hands. So that's their theory of how this all went down. It's also important to note that the defense brought up the fact that Raynella's prints were not on the gun, but Dave's prints weren't on the gun either. Which would make it seem like she had wiped it down at some point. Yeah. So what happened? Well, after days and days of deliberation, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. Eleven jurors wanted to convict. Well, one juror was a holdout who didn't necessarily believe that Reynella was innocent, but they could not in good conscience say that she was guilty. And they refused to go with the rest of the jurors. And as a result, the judge declared a mistrial. Wow. Yep. So a retrial was ordered. The new trial began on January 10th of the following year. The prosecutor's case was pretty much the same. And Raynella had a new defense, which was that Dave was murdered, just not by her. 
Oh, sis. Switching it up. So the medical examiner believed that David had died between 8.15 and 9 a.m. Because they said that the time period could have been as early as 6 a.m. Okay. But her daughter, Katie, left for school at 8.15. So it made more sense that she would wait until her daughter was out of the house to kill him. You would hope. I mean, it's entirely possible that I mean, you think about the attempted murder. She had a towel around the revolver. So it's it's also possible she killed him before. Yeah. So if indeed they said that he had been killed between 8.15 and 9, they said, well, that couldn't be possible because she was already on the road to go to the hospital. They claimed that she was at the hospital before that nurse saw her. So therefore, she had an alibi. There was no way that she could have killed Dave, but who knows? There was no camera at the farm. It's entirely possible that while she was out from 8.30 to 11 when she came back, that somebody else came to the farm and killed Dave while he slept. So they said that the evidence against Raynella was completely circumstantial. There's no fingerprints. There's no gunpowder residue. There's nothing that would say that she was the one who killed Dave. There's just evidence that someone killed Dave. The most compelling witness for the prosecution was once again the chief medical examiner. Diane Fanning interviewed some of the jurors, and they said that she was just highly articulate. She made the most sense. It was very, very compelling. The jury deliberated for nine hours over two days before delivering their verdict. And this time, they found Raynella guilty. Okay. Raynella was sentenced to 51 years to life in prison, with the earliest parole date being January 13th, 2070. Whoa. Yeah. And that's a pretty much a life sentence right there, seeing as she was born in 1948. The jurors said that two pieces of evidence that spoke to them was the fact that Raynella had no blood on her and had clearly not tried to perform CPR or embrace her husband. The second was that she had left a breakfast tray by his bedside. It was on the nightstand. And she had said that that was like evidence that she had tried to get him to eat something before she left. And she had left him sleeping, but she had brought him breakfast. But the jurors said that what they thought of was the fact that she had to reach like over or through this breakfast tray loaded with stuff to get to the phone and none of it was disturbed. So the fact was that, wow, when she found him, she very calmly went and reached over it to grab the phone versus anyone else who had just found that scene. Throw it. Would be like, get it out of my way. I'm grabbing the phone. It would crash to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And there was also the fact that nothing was touched. So if he really like got up and decided to kill himself, he didn't like take a sip of the orange juice or the water or the coffee that was all on this tray. He didn't touch it. So yeah, they were like, those were the the two big things. So after the guilty verdict and the sentencing, Cindy said, everybody can rest now. My dad can rest in peace. I loved him and I still miss him every day. This is a big burden off of my shoulders and closure for me and my kids. Something needed to be done. He didn't do it. They chose the right one today. Of her father, Cindy said, he was a good person, a good daddy, a good grandfather. He loved us and we loved him. He loved his job, loved working out, and he loved to help people. He cared about people. 
20-year-old Miranda Linkus, the youngest juror on the panel, echoed Cindy's sentiments in an interview. She said, learning more about Dave, he was an awesome guy. He reminded me so much of my dad. Yeah. So the state had charged Raynella with Ed Dossett's murder as well before the trial. But now that she was sentenced to such a long prison term, they dismissed those charges, not because they didn't think she was guilty, but because there was pretty much no use in using the resources for another trial when she was going to spend the rest of her life in prison anyway. Okay. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief that the Black Widow of Knox County had finally had her reckoning. However, this is unfortunately not the end of the story. In 2016, Raynella successfully appealed for a new trial. This was on the basis that the judge from the second trial had publicly gone through some substance abuse issues, and it appeared that he had been under the influence during Raynella's trial. Furthermore, there was precedent. There was another verdict that had already been overturned from the same time period. Okay. So she, you know, she deserved a new trial. When you find out that the judge was under the influence of narcotics during a trial, you, of course, have to retry that person. So this is trial number three that's starting in January of 2017. She now had a new attorney and her defense this time decided to go back to the suicide theory. And if you do want a deeper dive on specifically this third trial, uh, 48 Hours was there covering the whole trial. And Erin Moriarty has her own podcast. She's a 48 Hours journalist. It's called My Life of Crime with Erin Moriarty. And she did a six-piece arc on this called The Widow. They're really short, though, so it sounds like a lot. Like six episodes sounds like a big series, but they're like 20 to 30 minutes max. So I was able to listen to the whole thing. And it is like a day-by-day coverage of this third trial. So again, the prosecution stuck mainly to the same story. But it is important to note, and I did not tell you guys earlier in the first two, they were not allowed to enter anything into evidence about Ed Dossett's death, nor the fact that she had done a guilty plea to assault after being charged with attempted murder. So Steve Walker didn't get to testify. No one was allowed to testify about what happened to Ed Dossett. This is just about Dave in this vacuum, which I understand legally why that is the case, so that there's not some sort of prejudicial feelings going into it. But I also feel as a juror, I would feel like I was missing a big part of it later on. Yeah. Yeah. So the defense presented an expert forensic pathologist who testified that it was entirely possible, though admittedly not common, that Dave had managed to shoot himself and then had the spasm that caused the third shot. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Raynella's attorney brought in the actual bed where David had died and reenacted how it was possible how Dave had killed himself. But the weird part of this was that it was very theatrical. He was essentially acting out this suicide. And he has like a Southern accent and he's like, he was a proud man. And like basically saying that he was unable to care for his family anymore and he wasn't going to be a burden. And so he was acting out this like dramatic monologue about oh, all the reasons. God. Yeah, all the reasons why he had to kill himself. And then then he laid down and he did it this way. 
And so, yeah, it does. It really struck me as very odd, though, because he was a proud man was a refrain. And I just keep coming back to the fact that a proud man would not end his life. No. Like, I think he'd, a proud man would at least put a pair of jockey shorts on before he ended his life. Very differently. But yeah, I don't think that he would have anyway. It seemed like he had plans later that month. He did. He was excited about his life and his plans and his grandchildren. When testimony concluded, the defense filed a motion to dismiss the case based on insufficient evidence. Now, this is known as a Rule 29, and it is a routine request by the defense in just about every case. We don't always like bring it up, but I know, Andy, you know that I'm like, and then the defense request like made a motion to dismiss based on insufficient evidence it's something basically every defense attorney has to do because even if they don't have a shot in hell of it actually being dismissed they use that in the appeal process later for their client if their client is convicted so you know just like always this happened but in this case judge summers actually dismissed the case against Raynella. Wow. He said that he believed there was insufficient evidence to proceed. So after 14 years of suspicion, two wow. deceased husbands, one attempted murder, and six years behind bars, Raynella just got up and walked out of that place a free woman. She went with her two daughters who were very resolutely on her side and moved back into the Dossett family farm where her first husband and maybe victim still lay. Yeah, was buried. Man. So the real rub of all of this is that I forget the legal technical reasons why, but when a case is concluded in this fashion, you can't even appeal it. So this is just over. The prosecution can't appeal the verdict at all because there was no verdict. So sad for Cindy. It's so sad because that part that I read to you of what she said at the end of the second trial when she was like, I have closure. This is like, this is what me and my children need. And now it's like ripped away from her. So she's on the 48 hours as well. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And you know who else was pissed? The jury members. The jury members were apeshit because, you know, you're told when you're, you serve that like, this is a big deal. You are participating in a very important role in the American justice system. And you have to meticulously pay attention for weeks and weeks at a trial so that you can make a, a very informed decision about somebody's life. To the fact that they sat there for that entire trial and then right at the end, the judge took the opportunity away from them to deliver their verdict was like kind of a slap in the face to them. Was Raynella close with the judge at all? Not that I could find out. So I, there was no, it was not explicitly stated that they had any former relationship with each other. They were of a similar age, but... That's not to say that there still wasn't some sort of payoff behind the scenes, closed doors. This person talks to this person, talks to that person. So we can't rule it out. But it was not, there was no provable link. No. Three of the jurors are on the 48 Hours as well as Aaron Moriarty's podcast. And they said that they planned to convict Raynella. They said they were going to find her guilty. 
And they all felt very confident in that. They said it was beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they said that actually all of the jurors got together after the trial and asked each other what they thought. And 100% of them said she was guilty. She was guilty as Wow. Jeez. So if it had gone to the jury, it would have been a very different outcome. So they were they were upset. On the 48 hours, one guy said, we were used. They used us as set pieces. Well, a second said, if Judge Summers was so convinced that he was right about the evidence, why not let us deliberate it? They went on to say that they did not buy the spasm defense at all and that the whole proud man theatrical moment was corny and forced. So now retired Judge Summers appeared on the 48 Hours to defend his decision. He stood by it. He said that if he had been the DA, he would have never brought this case to trial because he really did believe that there was insufficient evidence. He said that Raynell had an alibi. She didn't have gunpowder residue on her hands. And there was no evidence that she was even the last person to see Dave alive. So he said he felt like he did the right thing. And when Aaron Moriarty asked him, do you feel like you took this opportunity away from the jury to deliver their verdict, to trust them to do their part of what they're supposed to do? He said, no, I was simply doing my job and I was trying not to pass the buck to the jury. So both him, both the judge and the forensic like defense expert said the same thing, which is that it's not the defense's job to prove that their client is innocent. It is the state's job to prove that their client is guilty and being not guilty and being innocent are two very different things. Yeah. And when Aaron Moriarty asked Judge Summers if he felt like Raynella was innocent, he said, well, you know, only two entities know the answer to that question, the good Lord above and the defendant. Well, the jury that never got to deliberate sure felt like they knew what happened that day. And they believe that Raynella Dossett Leith got away with murder maybe twice. According to 48 Hours, the state of Tennessee is still looking into potentially bringing charges against Raynella once more. This time, of course, for the murder of first husband Ed Dossett. But I think that the 48 Hours aired at the end of 2017, and I did not see any new news about this, so I would not hold my breath. Yep. Wow. So that is the case of uh, Rainella Dossett Leith, who might have gotten away with murder twice with the last names just hanging over her head. <laughs> there they be. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Also, if you requested the story, let me know. This was another one of those ones that I swear somebody requested it and I could not find it. So please hit me up. I'll send you a sticker or something to say I'm sorry. We got some new magnets in, maybe a tote bag. <laughs> let me know. I'll feel terrible. <laughs> in conclusion, be careful, guys, those killer cows. It's summertime. They might be all acting a little crazy. One hoofing it, two hoofing it doing some fancy footwork, you just steer clear of those corrals, those steers. Also, if someone starts bringing flowers and checking in and being a little bit more friendly when they're usually not, I think you need to be aware. Yeah, you throw those flowers in the trash. As always, trust your gut when it comes to love so nobody ends up stampeded. We love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.